Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Romans 11. We start with Romans 11 this week. And we're in the middle of a discussion, a long discussion about why the Jews are not in the church. And we pick it up in Romans 11, starting with verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 4. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray this morning that you will pursue the hearts which are straying, that you will lasso the hearts that are bowing the knee to Baal, that you will use my words as a center and the thoughts of all of us are meditations and make them acceptable in your sight, because, Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins this section of his letter to Romans by pointing out what he is here saying is in explanation and clarification of what he had just said before. And so I want to read the last Uh, I want to read three verses of the end of the section just right before what we just read. He has been talking about the absence of God's people from the Christian church that worships his son, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And he says, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So he's talking about the Jews, God's people. And he says, they did not believe the report because what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? All right, you hear the inflection. You know, who? In other words, nobody. Nobody's listening. Nobody's believing. All right. And then in verse 20, he quotes Isaiah again. He says, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And then again, he pivots to Israel, to the Jews. And he says, but as for Israel, he says, quoting Isaiah, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is what he's just said about God's people, the Jews, that they are what? disobedient, and obstinate. All right? And this is in the Old Testament, right? Now, obviously, if this had been post-Holocaust, he never would have said anything so insulting about the Jews. Now, I'm being facetious, 
Again, you can't read the book of Romans and live in a post-Holocaust world and try to prove that you're not, that you're, you're not anti-Semitic, right? In other words, free yourself up from all the political correctness, all the pressures to not think categorical thoughts about any people group, and especially the Jews. No, we're thinking categorically about the Jews. That's the heart of Romans, right? One of the hearts. And so we have to free ourselves up from it. And you know you have to free yourself up to think that the prophet Isaiah to the Jews characterizes them as a disobedient and obstinate people, okay? So he's just gotten done saying this. They won't listen. None of them will listen to me. They're a disobedient and obstinate people. And that's then when he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? You know, in other words, look, the Jews are God's people. That's clear. But they're a disobedient and obstinate people. That's clear. And they're not in the church. That's clear. What on earth is going on here? That's not clear. <laughs> you know? What on earth? Okay. And so the Apostle Paul, feeling the tension, says, what? He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he responds this way, may it never be. And generally, when the Apostle Paul says this, he means what he says. In other words, this is like just an intense declaration. He's vehement. May it never be. Okay, so we know that God has not rejected his people. And so what on earth is going on? Because they're not in the church, (laughs) you know. They don't believe. They killed Jesus. They crucified him with the Romans. And they're disobedient and obstinate. Now let me ask you. Here we are in the church today. And the church today was the Jews of the Old Testament. It is God's people. We are God's people. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a church where a pastor has looked at his flock and has said, you, you ready for this, you are a disobedient and obstinate people. And then he looks up to God and he says, nobody's listening. Now think about this, right? you'd kind of feel a little bit rejected, wouldn't you? You are a disobedient and obstinate people. (laughs) You know? Oh, my. Because, you see, we have trouble even thinking this way about ourselves, and the reason is that we know we're right, and we know we're right because we're Christians. And we have to stand against the world. The world is so wrong. And it takes so much out of us to stand against the world because all our friends think we're weird. And how could God not honor that? You see? And we're always turning things around in such a way that it's about us and not about God. And so here the Jews are. They know what God's plan is, just like you. (laughs) You. You know what God's plan is, yeah. And it all has to do with the government and 4th of July and posse comitatus. And, and, you know, it's like, resist the tyrants, you know. Well, this is precisely 
precisely what the Jews were at the time of Jesus. They knew their dignity, and they knew that Rome was a tyrant, and they hated the tax collectors, and, and they knew what God's plan was, and they and so you had all these zealots at the time, look at me, you had all these zealots at the time who would go out and they would be the Messiah and they would gather people around them and then they would, then they would do what those dudes just did in New York, was it? You know, who like were at an intersection, what is it, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, nobody got shot and they all got busted and they hadn't even sent in the F-16s. <laughs> you know? In other words, Rome was such an overpowering authority. Military might, the phalanx, yeah, they knew how to fight. And then you had these Jews who knew what God, and that's why they rejected Jesus, because they knew what God's plan was. You see this? And so they rejected God's plan, right? Because you know that Jesus actually, this is not a joke, Jesus was God's plan. And when they tried to get Jesus to be a military leader and resist the tyrants, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he also said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Arrgh, boing, you know, it doesn't, does not compute, you know. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. My kingdom is not of, uh, 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 uh. resist the tyrants. Don't ever think that there wasn't internal consistency in God's people when they crucified God's Son. Don't ever patronize them. Don't ever think you wouldn't have done that. You would have done that. And it's because many of us are as sure that we know God's plan as the Jews were that they knew God's plan. And you know, when God doesn't fit into our plan, I hate to say it, but an awful lot of us are more committed to our plan than we are to God. God's plan almost always involves suffering and humiliation. And we're convinced that that can't be God's plan for us, you know. (laughs) And how many times do I have to learn that? You know? Don't you get tired of learning that? I mean, it's so humiliating to be humiliated. And so here, God told him what he was going to do. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our, his, our face from him. He was despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We don't want him to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. We want to resist the tyrants. <laughs> you know? We want to show we're a man. We have faith. We're, we're strong. <laughs> you know? And here come the F-16s. Knock your socks off, dude. And so they killed their Messiah. That's how committed they were to not being humiliated by Rome. That's how committed they were to resisting the tyrants. That's how committed they were to their plan that saw them restored to the glory days of David, King David, 
and Solomon. And so when Jesus came, no, it's like, I'm not doing that. That doesn't involve me glorified. That involves God glorified by man's dependence. And I'm not really interested in being dependent on God. I'm just interested in contributing something important to his project. <laughs> you know? Okay, knock your socks off. What, you have, you have an F-16 in your bedroom? Is that what you're going to contribute? And so... You remember Dylan, Bob Dylan's song? When they came for him in the garden, did they believe? When they came for him, we did it one year at Easter. And then it ends up when he rose from the dead. Did they believe? He said, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Did they really know what that power was worth? And so you just think, here God's people are. They're circumcised. They observe the Passover. The Passover. I mean, you talk about a humiliating ceremony. All you have to do is get a lamb, kill it, eat it, and get its blood all over your door. Right? You remember the Passover, and then your children will be protected, your cattle will be protected. Pharaoh and all of Egypt will be in mourning. Just kill a lamb, eat the lamb, and put a little bit of its blood over your door. Oh yeah, it was really self-important, and it said a lot about the dignity of the Jews that that was their national celebration. Then there was the thing about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and sending the, the scapegoat out of the city, you know, that was really, that was a really, that was a 4th of July celebration. Shock and awe, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so Jesus was just not quite what the project was, you know. And so they rejected him. They cried out, crucify him. And then, of course, they weren't in the church. Of course not. Are you kidding me? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you may have no part in me. I mean, and so all through the ancient world, there were accusations of cannibalism. This is not a dignified religion, is it? (laughs) And now the Jews aren't in the church. And it looks to them like God has rejected his people. So the Apostle Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He's asking their question, you know? He said, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. So that's the answer. You know the answer is, may it never be, right? But let's keep going. Then he says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. It's like, oh, oh, well, I'm glad he answered that question. May it never be. I'm a Jew. You know, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. So you get out your genealogy, you list your pedigree, and you show that what? You show that your blood runs Jewish and has for generations. That's what he's doing here. He's not making a claim about having circumcised heart. 
He's making a claim about having a circumcised foreskin. He's not making a claim about having yourself washed by the waters of baptism spiritually. He's saying that he was baptized by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've been washed by water. Are you with me? And so the Apostle Paul says, no, God has not rejected his people. Look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm of Abraham, one of his seed. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. And our response to that would be, yeah, but there aren't Jews in the church. And he says, well, what about me? And we say, well, one swallow doth not a summer make. (laughs) Or we say, you're the exception that proves the rule. The rule is that God has rejected his people. And the fact that you stick out like a sore thumb as a Jew in the Christian church shows God has rejected his people. And so he doesn't really answer it, does he? I mean, he does. All right, fine, there are Jews. But listen, as we go forward in the next section of Romans again and again and again and again, there's going to be wordplay. And by that, I don't mean puns. What I mean is that words will be used in different ways, and you have to be committed to asking what the Holy Spirit means with the words, not come into it with your preconceived notions that whatever occurs to your brain at a particular moment must be the literal meaning of the text, and you know what it is. Because if there's ever a chapter of Scripture where everybody brings their prior commitments to that chapter and then demands that the preacher and the teacher and and Scripture itself conform to their commitments, this is it. All right, but we'll get back to that. But I'm just warning you, you have to be very careful about words in, the, in this section. All right, now, he says, May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So he proves, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And so no, God hasn't rejected his people because I be his people and I not be rejected. You see that, all right? Then he says, God has not rejected his people. (laughs) Now, if there's anything the Apostle Paul is, it's repetitious. And so he's just gotten done saying, no, may it never be. And furthermore, look at me, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite. And then he says, God has not rejected his people. Okay, but to assert something does not mean to prove it, right? It still looks to me like God's people are missing. And you quote Isaiah saying they're disobedient and obstinate people. They're not in the church. They don't worship the Messiah that was sent to them. God has rejected his people. That's the tension that we're dealing with here. The Apostle Paul says, may it never be. Then the Apostle says, look at me. And then the Apostle says, God has not rejected his people. A declarative statement, categorical, God has not rejected his people. And then he adds a little phrase. And that little phrase that he adds is more than a hint. It is the goods of the sentence. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Now, there's a weasel strategy tactic of a lot of people here where they say, well, God saw that I would believe. God saw I would repent. God saw that I'd be the children of Christians and that I would have a good upbringing and that there would be no time in my life that I was not a Christian. And that's what it means by foreknew. Foreknew here does not mean that God saw what would happen being omniscient and therefore that he knew it beforehand, right? How do we know that that's not what he means? Well, because it says, because it says back in Romans chapter 8, what he means by foreknew, okay? And it says there in Romans 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are what? Called. Called according to whose purpose? Called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now listen, you're on a chronological continuum here. Foreknew, he also predestined. You've just moved on the continuum, he foreknew, then it says he predestined, okay, to become conformed to the image of his son. So he foreknew them, he predestined them for the purpose of them being conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's talking about our Lord. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these those whom he justified, he glorified. So you start out here, and you say foreordained, then you say predestined, and then you say called, and then you say justified, and then you say glorified. And glorified is in heaven. It's not that he knew it beforehand and then predestined. What on earth is the meaning of the word predestination if it happens after God anticipates that you'll be a Christian? Foreknowledge is God of his own perfectly free decrees setting his love upon you. And it's not because of anything you do, because before the foundation of the earth, he foreknew you. He set his affection, his love on you, and then he predestined you. And predestination is all through Scripture and all through the book of Romans. There's no escape. Sorry. I mean, I could just keep reading and reading and stopping and commenting. See, you, you, you took a pogo step and you jumped over that one, didn't you? Oh, there you, you're on your pogo stick again. You have to be more in the air than on the ground to remove God's sovereign authority over those who are saved. Okay? And I just want to say to you, would you grow up? Be a man. Be a woman. Don't be a child. Don't keep deciding what God's project is and trying to help him with it. Learn a little bit more what his project is and bring yourself into submission to it. 
whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So what is he saying here? Well, what he's saying is, no, he hasn't rejected his people because they're his people because he chose them, because he foreknew them. And he hasn't rejected those whom he foreknew. You can't reject people that you've chosen. God is incapable of not finishing the work that he has begun. It says foreknew, then it says predestined, and the whole way to glorification. No, God is not like you and me. So this morning, we're staying at Heather and Doug's, they're gone. They're out celebrating Carver and David Talcott's birthdays. And I get up this morning and, you know, John, Nathan is staying, not Jonathan, Nathan. Nathan is, is there in the house. The rest of the family's gone. And so, you know, Mary Lee's still in bed. Nathan's still in bed. So I don't want to make a mess. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know. I want to get out of there as quickly as I can so that I don't wake them up, right? Right? And so I get out there as quickly as I can because I don't want to wake them up. Well, guess what? I didn't finish my work. There were things that I did not accomplish that were a necessary part of me leaving that house. Well, then I got to church and I had my, my Sunday shoes in the car and so I did not tie my shoelaces. So when I got in my office and sat down at the computer, my shoelaces weren't tied. And I thought to myself, you know, if I don't tie my shoelaces now, I will forget they're not tied. I'll either fall or I'll go into the pulpit with my shoes untied. Look, it is our habit to not finish our work. I had to show Josiah that if you trim all the boxwoods of our yard and you leave all the trimmings sitting even on top of the boxwood, you know, let alone in the mulch. It looks hideous. Why? Well, because the minute you trim the top off the boxwood and leave it sitting on top of the boxwood, it dies and it's brown. So there's all this brownness on the top. No, no, Josiah, actually you have to do the part of the job that isn't fun. It's fun to cut and shape. It's not fun cleaning up hair. We all agree with me on that. Every job has a part that isn't fun. All right? And that's where the actual quality of the job is shown. I tried to explain to him the concept of details. And that if he would be willing to work and had an eye for details, he'd never, he'd never lack a job. You know, I'm channeling you, Paul. Okay. Look, we all know what a good workman is, and he finishes his work. So what? Is God a bad workman? Now, my guess is your natural reaction is going to be to say, well, but he needs a willing client. God needs somebody who is willing to be sanctified, right? If God's going to complete his work of saving me, then I have to be willing for God to work on me. 
And I say, well, were you willing when you first came to Christ? Well, yeah, that's how I did it. I was willing. I chose Jesus. And I say, did you really? So you were, you were really, a, you were the ever ready, the ever, ever ready bunny battery or whatever it is. You know, you were, choo, 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 choose Jesus, choo, 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 choo. You know, and that, that was why you had a happy life. So that's the way you see your agency in your life, right? You chose Jesus, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you meant it, and then you chose to be sanctified, and you chose the right church, and you chose the right wife, and, and boy, you must have listened to your public school teachers that life is all about making the right choices. Listen, not one of us is going to say that we chose God. Not one of us. Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't choose God. God commands us to choose life, which is to choose God. I don't mean to say that our will is not a necessary part of faith in Jesus Christ. It is. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he would never command us to do something that we did not have the ability to do. Do you understand that? Jesus is not going through a, um, Jesus is not playing word games with us. And you say, well, but you just said that God chooses you. These things are not mutually exclusive. It is not mutually exclusive for God to set his love on you from before the foundation of the earth and for you to choose Jesus. What you're really doing there, when he says those whom he foreknew, all right, what you're really doing, if you, if you say, well, no, uh, I chose him, you're setting up a situation where in order for things to be fair, to be reasonable, to be logical, it has to conform to your understanding of what choice is. And you say, well, everybody knows what choice is. And listen, if anybody ever says to you, everybody knows what something is, you know nobody knows what that thing is. I mean, honestly, we're that stupid, all of us. So if everybody says, you know what choice is, you know, I can remember there was a commercial 20 years ago, and I never got tired of just thinking how stupid it was. All right, you remember it? A-T-N-T. The right choice. Well, John's very happy that we switched as a church from AT&T to Verizon. But now I've got that brash, obnoxious woman in that commercial. It is, I don't know that I've ever hated a commercial as much as I hate that one. And I I have thought, but no, (laughs) you know, and don't worry, I, well, never mind. Okay, it is true that to choose life is the right choice. It is true that God commands us to make the right choice. It is also true that God gives us the faith and the obedience to make the right choice. Those things are not mutually exclusive. They're not. And you say, well, how can you say that? Any reasonable person knows that choice has to be unhindered. It has to be 
in a vacuum. It has to be, you know, out in an Andromeda where there's nobody pushing, manipulating. It's just like you're set down, you see the options, and without any external pressures, you make your choice. And I say, oh, have you noticed people doing that in your life? They say, what do you mean? I say, well, like on the social media. Have you noticed how people on social media, deciding what to say, what to like, everything they do, they make it just in a vacuum with no manipulation, no propaganda, no ideology, no pressures, no censoriousness, no moralism. It's just people presented with options who exercise their personhood. Their unique snowflakishness. And it's amazing how all of them say the same thing. And that shows what's right. I mean, you know, what a bunch of bunk. The more people agree on something, the more you know it's wrong. Because truth is never easy. It's never easy. I remember how angry people were that our elders decided that we were going to have virtual worship for a while and then that we were going to have masks according to the, the civil authorities, right? And all oh, people were just, oh my goodness, not so much, hardly anything at this church, but all my friends' churches. It was like people were like going, what's the word, like psycho. And here we had Adams, one of the best doctors in Bloomington, could have practiced medicine anywhere in the country, could have gone to medical school anywhere he wanted, but he loved us, he chose us. And then Tom, you know, who everybody knows, he is the infectious disease expert in Bloomington. And the two of them, I'm talking to Adam, and I say, Adam, what do you, what do you, what, what do you and Tom think we should do? And Adam says, well, the problem is that nobody knows anything. I say, what? I didn't say what. I said, yeah, because I knew that. He said, nobody knows. Nobody knows about masks. Nobody knows about quarantine. Nobody knows what's going to help. Nobody knows how serious the problem is. And he said, so everybody's just making decisions without good knowledge, without good information. People, that is you. And so when you were absolutely certain that masks sucked, you know, carbon dioxide into the mouths and lungs of little children and never should be used, and you're sitting there feeling superior to your physician. You're an idiot. How do I know you're an idiot? Well, because your physician is an idiot. But he's the right idiot to make the decision. That's as high as we have for standards of perfection in this life. We are idiots. We all get together and share our idiocy. And we try to observe submission to authority as we are all idiots. And it's not that truth doesn't exist. My father used to say that truth and time walk hand in hand. 
And so as time goes by and we submit to the idiots above us, generally some things become clear. There is no decision that you make, including the decision for Jesus Christ, that is devoid of external pressures and influence. It just does not happen in your life. I think about the man in this, in this, in this church who is more infuriatingly independent of judgment than anybody else. And it's actually not you, Daniel. Although he, he does resemble you. It's Eric. I mean, Eric is infuriatingly independent of judgment. Would you agree, Eric? I mean, it doesn't infuriate you. You relish it, right? But listen, I have a little secret to tell you about even Eric. Would you believe that his wife has a profound influence on Eric? (laughs) And she does trust me. No man is an island. And no man's judgment and no man's decision is absent external pressures and influence. And so if you decide that your choice about faith, about religion, about Jesus, has to be free and unhindered, or you're not going to dignify it with your approval. You're contrary to all of Scripture. But more than that, you're contrary to all of the experience of your whole life, watching yourself and others. We don't live that way. And the truth is that God made us, are you ready? And not we ourselves. Remember that. It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. He made you. Guess what? The one that makes you knows something about you. The reason the Apostle Paul was not cast off was that God chose Paul. You cannot argue about anything about Paul's life and tell me that he was naturally or somehow the kind of person who would give up killing the Damascus Christians and imprisoning them on the road to Damascus, you know, and that it was psychosomatic that he lost his vision, and that really Gamaliel had prepped him to receive the Messiah, you know, his, his rabbi, and that it really redounded to the Apostle Paul's glory for him to become a Christian. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, listen. For the Apostle Paul to have God foreknow him, God predestine him, God call him, God justify him, and then God glorify, sanctify and glorify him, is uh, the first wonder of the world. It is unbelievable. And then the Apostle Paul, you know, you would think, you know, I always love Campus Crusade. 
and uh, Young Life because their, their idea of evangelism was to find the, the most handsome man, the most beautiful woman, the most gifted athlete, the most, uh, you know, counts, you know, the most acknowledged leader. And what, what they always would say is, you know, if we can get like the cheerleader, if we can get like the football quarter, if we can just get the people that everybody looks up to, well, then everybody will look up to God. And you should be laughing. It's a joke. It never works that way. Why? Well, if that's how God worked, what we would see is that the Apostle Paul would be sent to whom? The Apostle Paul would have been sent to the Jews. (laughs) You know? His pedigree was awesome. He was like both the the prom queen and the prom king. You know? He was like the quarterback and the striker. And so what does God do with all the natural assets that the Apostle Paul has? He sends Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. (laughs) Think about it. It's pretty funny. That's how much God needs our gifts. You know, God really needs your your hipsterism, you know. I mean, if you didn't shave your head, how on earth would he use you today? You know. Listen, at this point in my life, everybody who knew Mary Lee's father and my father and looked up to them, will have nothing to do with me. Nothing. Nothing to do with me. Now, why? Is it because I'm an inaccurate reflection of their... No. Eh, there's some things that are very different to my loss and their dignity. You know, they were more dignified than I am. But we have the same faith. And the history of God's people is that those that God has given the benefit of circumcision, the benefit of the Passover, the benefit of baptism, the benefit of the Lord's Supper, the benefit of godly parents who raised them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, have refused to humble themselves under the hand of God and will have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. This is the history of the church. Now, does that mean that God doesn't keep his promises concerning the covenant and the children of the covenant? Now, you know, I'm Joe Bailey's son. I was baptized, raised in Wheaton, had Gamaliel as my seminary professor. And so, one swallow doth a summer make. And this exception is the rule. God keeps his covenant with his people. And listen, if you think it's intense for me to say this now, you just keep going for the next few weeks in Romans as we go through it. Because the Apostle Paul is 
is slapping us back and forth until we give up all of the things we think God has made central to his plan. That he always saves those who are baptized, that he always saves those who are members of Trinity Reform, that he always saves Baileys, that, that if you are raised properly, you'll make the right choices, first among which is the choice of Jesus. Okay, you just think of all the ways that we just naturally think about this stuff. God blows it up. Now, why does God blow it up? God blows it up because God hates self-reliance, self-empowerment, self-reference. God hates man glorified. And that's why Edwards titled his sermon, God Glorified by Man's Dependence. God loves for us to be able to have nothing to brag about. God loves for us to just go, okay, that one. And that's about what you were like when God reached down into the hole and grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and picked you up. And you say, well, well, listen, Pastor Bailey was so helpful to me that day in the office. You know, he looked at me and he said, how do you know you're a Christian? You know, no, 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 no. Pastor Bailey didn't say that. Pastor Bailey's an idiot. But somehow God woke you. And I'm not using woke in the normal way. God woke you from your slumber and took away your complacency and your smugness and your, and God said, I am God, you worship me. And you said, oh, I will. Okay, now listen. God does not want you to explain to him how he has to save you, how much your will has to be involved in it. And God does not owe the Jews today that they as a nation will come in. We'll get to that later. We have promises about it. And don't forget this text when we get to those promises because you know this whole section starts with him being very clear that when he talks about God's people, he's talking about an ethnic group. Abraham's seed of the tribe of Benjamin. Don't ever get cosmic on me about this whole section. (laughs) It's not just talking about the church. And if you're, if you, some of you smarty pants here in the front, if you're going to get mad at me, then fine, you get mad at me, I don't care. But listen, the truth is not either dispensationalism or covenant theology. You don't get through the Apostle Paul just saying, I'm covenant theologian, I'm a dispensational John MacArthur. No, 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 no. I, I don't give you a rip about any of it. This text is hard. It is very hard. All Israel will be saved. Okay? But right here, what we have to see is that we are just so cocky about how God works, what his plan is, how we fit into his plan, taking ownership for the way that we fit into his plan, saying, well, I anticipated that's how God would use me. You know? And and I knew how important I was for his plan because I was raised in Wheaton. And everybody in Wheaton is important, at least when I grew up there, you know. And, and, and I'm important. And, and God sent me to Bobby Knight? 
What a waste. You guys don't know who Bobby Knight was, do you? You don't know who he was, do you? Yeah, see, I knew it. You better explain who Bobby Knight is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My goodness, you're missing your, your patrimony, your heritage, your bloodline. So I got a call from a church in Bloomington, and I'd never heard of Bloomington. All I knew about Indiana was that there was this stinky road that went across the top of the state that had a bunch of smoke along the way. You know, it went through Gary, and, you know, that, to me, that was all Indiana was, you know. And so my friend, uh, Jack Philippi, a pastor at Baptist Church, he says, hey, Timmy boy, that's what he always called me, Timmy boy, Timmy boy, hey, Timmy boy, you, you know where that is, don't you? And I said, no, where is it? And he said, well, <laughs> Timmy boy, he says, you're going down into Bobby Knight country. And I said, well, who is Bobby Knight? I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of Bloomington. I'd never heard of IU. I'd never heard of basketball. <laughs> and now I'm watching the semifinals and finals, and I really, really... Well, I won't get into that. <laughs> so far, I'm happy. That will give you a clue. Anyhow, God does not need your hair. He doesn't need your haircut. He doesn't need your clothes. He doesn't need your parents. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your intelligence and work ethic. David, unbelievable work ethic. Did you know that about David? I mean, this guy's beyond a drone. I don't know what's beyond a drone, but you're way beyond a drone. You know, I think in the middle of the night, you find your, wake up and find yourself working, right? Yeah, I think so. He does not need your suffering. He does not need anything that you think you're bringing to him that he needs. What God needs is to be glorified. And he is glorified by man's dependence. And how are you dependent on God? You have very little thoughts of yourself and very large thoughts of God. And you stop fighting against this notion that you have to choose him before he can choose you. This is idiocy. And so no, God is not capable of breaking his promises. He will be true to himself because he does not change. And before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. And so God will fulfill his choice. And so all Israel will be saved. And you say, well, are you saying that all Jews will be saved? I said, that's not what I said. I said all Israel will be. Well, what is Israel? Is Israel Jews or is it Baptists or what is Israel? I say, we'll get to that. But right now, what we know is that he says, do you not know, the scripture says, in, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? 
Now, what's going on here is Elijah is a godly prophet at a desperately wicked time in the life of Israel. Ahab is the king, and next to him is that, that witch whore named Jezebel. I think she is the most wicked woman in Scripture. Nobody, nobody I know has named their daughter Jezebel. There is a pet shop in town with that name. Oh, that's right, it's Delilah. Okay, all right. Okay, so I am right. I have never yet, I'm sure that there are some witches out in the Castro district who used to be men. Jezebel kills all the prophets of God except a hundred who are hidden. All of Israel is worshiping Baal. Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel. And he calls Israel to him and he says, how long are you going to be halting between two opinions? Either God is God or Baal is God. Now make your decision. And he has the prophets of Baal. How many of them are there? Nope. David Canfield is wrong, so if you get it right, you have a leg up on David Canfield. Huh? Nope. Come on. 450. You were close. 450 prophets of Baal. They all come up to the top of the mountain, and Elijah says, okay, now put your, put your, put your offering on top of your altar. And then call on your gods to burn it up. So the prophets of Baal are there, and they just, they're going wacko. They're calling down their god who is not a god. They're, and he doesn't burn the sacrifice up. And they're going crazy because it's in front of all the people, and it's humiliating. And so they just get more frantic and more frantic, and, and Elijah starts mocking them. He mocks them. And then it says that they're so frantic that they take out their swords and their daggers. Now, women, listen to me. And they cut. They cut. Don't cut, because that's what you do to worship and to bow before Baal. Don't cut. If you have pain, talk to us. Don't cut. They cut, and it says they cut themselves so much that blood gushes. That's the word that's used. And guess what? No fire comes from heaven. (laughs) So then Elijah, he's not content with the way it is. He says, come on, bring a bunch of big jars and pour water on this sacrifice. So they pour water. It ends up filling a trench around the altar. And then he calls out and says to God, God, you send fire from heaven to consume this sacrifice. And guess what? The God who is there sends the fire. And that fire comes down and it goes, and it eats the sacrifice alive. But then it goes on and it goes, and it gets the wood. And then it goes, and it gets all the stones 
And then it goes, and it gets all the water in the ditch around it. Who's the true God? God is the true God. And so here Elijah is. He is the active agent. He is the man who prayed. And you're supposed to pray like Elijah, you remember. Well, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is what? The people say, God is God. They say, okay, we see it. They didn't, and you did. God is God. We'll serve the true God. Elijah says, okay, get all the prophets of Baal and bring them down to the creek. So they go down to the creek, and then Elijah says, now slay the priests of Baal. How many? 450. Okay. And so all the men that serve God, just like in the camp after, you know, at the foot of the mountain after they were after Aaron had made the idol. But that's not what happened. What actually happened is, Elijah did tell them to bring the 450 prophets down to the creek. But Elijah was a man of God. You know what he did? He killed them all himself. That's godliness. He killed them himself. And do you know that as soon as he got done killing all these 450, imagine how much he was covered with blood. This wasn't guns or arrows. And right after he got done, what do we read in Scripture? What we read is that the very next, the very next statement in 1 Kings is... So Ahab, and he's the king, this has just happened. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the, I'm sorry, no. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. That's why I say he's bloody. He used the sword to do it, okay? Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And he, referring to Elijah, was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might what? That he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God responds, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now listen, people. Remember I said that if you're going to make much of yourself and little of God's decrees and predestination, that you have to be on a pogo stick that's up in the air more than it's on the ground. 
look at the text you just read. It says, what is the divine response for him? I have what? Kept for myself. I have kept for myself, says God. What this means is that if you belong to God, it's not because you have kept yourself, it's because he has kept you. Okay? It's not about you. You give glory to God. How do you give glory to God? Because he keeps you. Why does it give glory to God? Well, because you wouldn't be able to keep yourself. How many people in America today are not bowing the knee to Baal? I'm sure you think about this. Of those people who are bowing the knee to Baal, how many of them, all right, are Christians who are members of Christian churches? How many of them love Oh, cross that lift us up my head, I dare not ask to fly. Think of how these people who rejected Christ, who refused to honor him, were just transported by singing the Psalms. Come on. It's not about you. It's about God. He's the one that keeps you. And so what we see here at the end of this text is that even when the great godly man Elijah was convinced that he was the only one who is faithful to God, God said to him, nah, 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 nah. I've kept 7,000. Now at that time, Israel would probably have been somewhere one, two, two and a half million. Much less than 1%. But 7,000 is a lot of people. So what about all those other people? Well, theirs was the covenant. Theirs were the promises. Theirs was the law. Do I need to keep going? Those people perfectly identified as a transsexual. Now, do you understand what I'm saying here? They identified as one thing, but they were something else. Are you with me? We all know what that is, right? Those people all identified as Jews, as Israel, as Abraham's seed, as the tribe of Benjamin, as schooled by Gamaliel, as baptized at Trinity Presbyterian Church, as elders of the church, pastors. They had everything. And then there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. That God kept. Now one last thing and I'll be done. How does the Apostle Paul speak? And how does the Old Testament speak about those who really are sons of Abraham? who really are children of promise, who really are Israelites, who really are Jews, really, really, who really are circumcised in the heart, who really are baptized in the Spirit. How does Scripture speak about them? How does Scripture show you in this text that these people 
belong to God, and are kept by God. How does it describe it? Okay, come on. What is it? Come on, you're studying for the bar. Yeah! Right on, dude. Did you hear what he said? You're going to pass the bar. He said they didn't bow the knee to Baal. (laughs) You know what Calvin says at this point? He doesn't put it like this, but what he says is, "Don't, don't, don't you patronize scripture here. It's a real objective, skin and bones, fleshly action that's pointed to. They did not bow the knee to Baal. You know, we have a tendency to make everything like spiritual. And guess what was spiritual about them? That they didn't bow the knee to Baal. Do you look at pornography? Do you look at pornography? You know the point I'm making. You're going to tell me that you're looking at pornography is not you bowing the knee to Baal? Huh? Huh? You're you're sure about this. You're sure that you can be a Christian and worship strange flesh and the two go together nicely. You say, oh, they don't go together nicely. I'm not proud of it. I say, how many, how many Jews do you think were bowing before Baal and sacrificing their children to Moloch and said that they weren't proud of it? Are you with me? And they knew the true God, but they were like ACDC, some other lover as well as me. They were like able to like, you know, like David Bowie. You know, on the one hand, I'm with Mick Jagger, but on the other hand, I'm with Mrs. Bowie. I have sort of a gay aesthetic, you know. All the Jews at that time had a gay aesthetic. They knew how to do both sides, you know. They knew how to wear work boots and loafers. They knew how to be a man and a woman, and a man, woman, and a woman, and man. Listen, everywhere else in life, we know precisely what is going on with identity politics. And then we plead ignorance when it comes to those who are Israel and those who are Israel. Those who are circumcised in the flesh, those who are circumcised in the heart. All of a sudden, we plead ignorance. We force God. No, no, God, it has to be Jews. It has to be the truth. No, no, no. No, no. You're going to keep your promises. You better keep them the way I judge. They have to be kept. Don't you think that the Jews did not have the same temptations as you have and that that's what made them visit the cult prostitutes because they didn't have the privacy 
of a computer at home that they could look at their idols on. Come on. Don't you think that you can patronize God by lecturing him on what is and isn't bowing the knee to Baal? No. God is no fool. And when God said he had kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, I guarantee you there was not one of them there who was worshiping at the temple of strange flesh. Not one of them. Without holiness, you will not see God. Or another way of saying it is without holiness, you can know that God, what? Is not keeping you. And so how would you respond? Well, this is the reason that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If you see that you're bowing the knee to Baal, you best return to God. And you best be done. You best be done with all the Baals screaming at us like the sirens, you know, along the river, just screaming at us to satiate our lust, to, to feed our hunger, to, you know, to give in to the flesh because we serve a, a merciful God. Uh, no, they didn't. The, the 7,000 he kept, actually, actually the 7,000 he kept, actually, there was something visible. <laughs> and it was they did not bow the knee to Baal. And you young men, don't you think that this is a sermon that's inapplicable to me? Don't you ever think this is a young man's sin? In some ways, it is much harder. But every single one of us here, men and women together, you women that refuse to be feminine, that refuse to give yourself to submission and to honor Adam and God as father, <laughs> knock your socks off. Knock your socks off. But I'm here to tell you God's going to win. That's the most profound thing I've said this morning, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful certainty we have that you are the creator of the universe and that life is short and that all men shall stand before you with every secret disclosed. Father, please keep us from having secrets. Father, be merciful to us and to our children. Give them faith. Humble them. Humble us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.